You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Thor, Love, and Thunder, which came out in 2022, and was directed by Taika Waititi. It stars Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Taika Waititi, Russell Crowe, Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista, Kat Dennings, and Christian Bale. The genre would be superhero epic. Are you packed? A hand grenade. Portable speaker. Thor Love and Thunder is a heartfelt superhero jam. Look who it is! It's an epic adventure. Yes! Massive. Sensational. Another classic Thor adventure. The best Thor film yet. This ends here and now! I'm counting on that. Thor Love and Thunder. Rated PG-13. Awesome. Ain't that the truth. In theaters tomorrow. Like some of the most recent MCU entries that I have seen, Thor Love and Thunder feels like a mishmash of disparate elements seemingly drawn from different movies, which often feel thrown together. And yet, it nonetheless achieves some level of emotional resonance thanks to a couple of sterling performances carrying it through all the way to the end. This fourth film of the Thor saga, it almost feels unfinished at points, as there are some sequences which are just gorgeously rendered especially an extended sequence more than halfway through on the, quote, Shadow Realm planet, whereas there are some scenes where the green screen is just distractingly bad. I have never been a particular fan of director Taika Waititi, though to be fair, I've only seen four films of his. And I liked, but I didn't love his previous Thor film, the hugely celebrated Thor Ragnarok. It actually has some of the same tonal issues of this film. However, Ragnarok is an exquisitely crafted film featuring eye-popping production design and just a very cool retro sci-fi aesthetic which really shines through on that garbage planet where our hero spends half of his runtime in Ragnarok. Also, the costumes, the makeup, the creature designs, they all just looked so unique and lived in. But sadly, behind that standout Shadow Realm sequence, which is basically a planet devoid of color except for a few select parts... The director seems to have blown most of his creative wad on that previous Thor adventure, as Love and Thunder just feels and looks gaudy at times. Does that look real? In that particular shot, no, actually. <laughs> it, it doesn't really, right? When you look close. You need to be more blue. Well, well you know, no. but does he look real? No, none of does us. Does she look she, she Something looks. looks very off about this. Now, of course, part of that might be by design. Compared to the real Asgard, the planet of the previous films, it makes sense that new Asgard on Earth would come off like a kitschy, Vegas-like approximation. But then, how does that account for why our hero's armor, I mean, the things he's wearing, and his hammer, and the costumes worn by other gods that he would encounter in this movie, they all look so plasticky? The film just has a cheap look for much of its runtime, and unfortunately, that's not its biggest issue. <laughs> Boy, I sound like I'm being mean here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. Well, short version, 
Thor is a bore, at least for the majority of this film, when he isn't sharing the screen with a certain co-star. Now, this is nothing against Chris Hemsworth, as he has always proven pretty game with whatever's been on the page for this character. And he's been a good actor in other movies, such as Rush. He's a strong actor with charisma and great comedic chops. But from the bro-y way his character is forced to dress in this movie, to the excess of ham-fisted dad jokes his character is saddled with, he sadly never has been less engaging as a character as he is in this film. Tell them what happened here today. Tell them the time that Thor, ragtag motley crew, misfit desperados, turn the time the battle etched their names in history. The odds may be against us, but I'll tell you this for free. Here it comes. This and I mean, say what you want about those first two Thor films, both of which I really like. But the Odinson character, referring to Thor, was portrayed with depth and a regal quality. Now, I wasn't as crazy about the direction that he was taken in Ragnarok nor Avengers Endgame. But here, he has just been presented as such a silly doofus that it's a miracle that he doesn't sink a sequel which bears his name. And the reason that this film is not sunk by a lesser Thor is the return of an actress and a much derided character who, in my humble opinion, was always the secret weapon for the Thor franchise. But we'll get to her a bit later. Let's just say that this character brings some real emotion to this story. And that emotion is also brought by the other Oscar-winning actor who helped save this movie from devolving into a two-hour Benny Hill sketch. In space! And that would be Christian Bale as Gore the God Killer, I think that's what he's called, who kicks off the movie with a dark, affecting cold open to almost rival the very effective one from No Time to Die recently. Except in that case, we did not have to watch a young, frightened Madeline Swan suddenly find herself in an absurdly silly setting right out of a Baz Luhrmann movie. Yep, just in the opening sequence of Thor Love and Thunder, we are already witnessing a movie that's often tonally at war with itself. But that's taking nothing away from Bale's performance, who has emerged from tragedy with a singular mission. The only ones who gods care about is themselves. So this is my vow. All gods will die. Bale is damn impressive throughout, making the most of each scene that he appears. He's creepy, menacing, and articulate about what's driving him all the same, despite being under gobs of generally effective ghostly makeup. He sometimes comes off as a more growly British Pennywise, but without the clown getup. Now, I've heard some criticism that Bale is not in the movie enough or is underutilized, but actually, I disagree. This is a villain who leaves a mark, and with just a few select sequences of him either fighting our heroes and or terrorizing a group of Asgardian children whom he has kidnapped, we see this tragic figure fully realized, leading to a satisfying conclusion for his character as well. I'm probably making it sound like only Bale and Portman carry this movie, but they do have some help. Besides Hemsworth coming through in some critical moments late in the film, you also have the invaluable presence of Tessa Thompson. She returns as Valkyrie. My dearest Asgardians, a turn of events has allowed me to take some me time. Here I can lounge like a local and yet eat like a king. The customs of Midgard are rather odd, but occasionally amusing enough. And gratefully, she gets in on the action here, too. Thompson was a standout in that previous movie, Ragnarok, and she is still a blast in this movie as well. But seriously, if there was ever a side character who was overdue for her own standalone Marvel movie, and yes, I said movie, 
not Disney Plus series, it's Valkyrie. Through Sorry to Bother You, Creed, and Annihilation, where she also co-starred with Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson has never given a less-than-stellar performance. She is a major star in need of a star vehicle at this point. And unfortunately, there's even more unnecessary junk crammed into the two-hour runtime of this movie, including way too much of the insufferable Korg. I know, he's a character, the rock character who everyone loves, just not my bag. And he's voiced by Taika Waititi. The character of Korg seems to be mainly brought back into the story just so he can deliver a lazy expositional framing device, which immediately wears out its welcome. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking. Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. And yet, the positives of Thor Love and Thunder just slightly outweigh its negatives in the end. Amidst all of the GNR-fueled noise and tackiness thrown at the screen, there is still a very affecting tale about the preciousness of life and love at the core of this movie. Gratefully, Watiti just nails some critical moments, helped in no small part by two top-flight actors coming through in the clutch. That brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Oh yeah, have I mentioned GNR? otherwise known as Guns and Roses. Yep, we actually hear four songs, four songs from the Guns and Roses catalog throughout this movie. And not only that, a character has named himself Axel in honor of their lead singer, Axel Rose. And the end credits are almost entirely in fonts that you would see used on album covers from Guns N' Roses. So yeah, props to Watiti for making a distinct musical choice and just running with it. Now, me personally, I've always been a bit mixed on Guns N' Roses as a band, but I cannot deny their place in rock history. And along those lines, there was always that one epic nine-minute power ballad from their 1991 album, Use Your Illusion One, which I was always a sucker for, especially its crazy extended music video, which features a fictionalized Axl Rose mournfully playing the piano by himself in the desert, then inside an abandoned church, then with the band in front of a giant orchestra. Well, let's just say there's also a wedding. Oh, and Slash plays his best man who loses the ring. It's adorable. And then there's a big outdoor wedding reception, and then there's pouring rain, and then there's a funeral. Okay, you get the point. Needless to say, it's a pretty wild video. The song is November Rain. It's a good song. Well, the last two minutes of this song just pretty much crescendo into a pounding guitar jam led by Slash, backed by orchestra, and fittingly, we hear this portion of the song playing over the batshit climax of this movie, which I will not dare to spoil because, well, one, it's pretty damn fun. Two, there's something that Thor is able to do with regards to his powers that I just can't quite make sense of. And three, this is just the right type of emotional music leading to an emotional development towards the end of this story. And the music culminates in a moment on screen that's both rousing 
and touching. And now the next category, the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now about that moment I just mentioned. I will also not spoil it, but let's just say it involves something occurring away from this action climax with another character who is called to attention by, well, let's just say some sort of tool. And what results is the emotional high point of this story as we see one character perform a selfless act, which I have to admit that I found genuinely moving. And just a shout out to Lord Feige, Kevin Feige, and his crew at Marvel Studios, who I've admittedly been quite critical of throughout the existence of this franchise, for their continuous propensity towards needing to soften the blow of many a serious moment in these movies with a needless joke or quip. Thank you for not effing this up and just allowing this particular moment to breathe. The next category, and sorry, the order is a little jumbled this time, it's Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with this film. Right. Speaking of effing things up, what is the legendary Russell Crowe doing in this movie? I hereby open this holy council. Over they go. Where are we going to hold this year's orgy? Well, apparently, he stuck playing Zeus, riffing in a god-awful attempt at a Greek accent, wearing an even worse wig, and crammed within a pretty unflattering gold toga outfit, which I'm gathering is its own bad joke. But that's not all. He is also leading a cringe-inducing extended sequence of bad humor that so stops this film in its tracks, you could have just referred to this world that our characters are visiting as Cantobite. And I would not have batted an eye. I get nothing else. It's that bad. And now the final category. MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This brings me back to the return of that secret weapon. And yes, she was even a secret weapon in the second movie, The Dark World. That would be the return of Natalie Portman as Thor's former love, Jane Foster. Not only does a darker subplot involving her character bring more necessary weight to this story, but she plays through her story with so much grace, gentle humor, and warmth that it truly elevates the movie all around. I never quite understood the criticism of the Foster-Odinson romance from those first two movies. You know, she's the scientist, he's the god from another planet. Hemsworth and Portman have always had such an easy chemistry between them. The cute banter comparing science to magic in that first movie, her bemused reactions to being on Asgard in the second movie, even though her character honestly was not given that much to do in either of those first two films, both characters and actors just really worked well together as curious avatars into each other's worlds. And here, to Watiti's credit, he co-wrote the screenplay with Jennifer Caton Robinson. The character of Jane Foster is given a lot more to do here, including brandishing that hammer as the mighty Thor. Having them fight alongside each other elevates both characters, Thor and Jane Foster. It's as if color feels to tread. It's unmistakable. Well, then, if it's color we need, let's bring the rainbow. Bring the rainbow? Is that a catchphrase or something? She's only been a Thor for a minute. I mean, saving lives, she's quite good at, but the rest of it, she needs work. How many catchphrases have there been? A lot. Yep, jump the gun. It's just gratifying to see these two characters together, all leading to an emotional climax that does still pack a punch, despite too many silly detours leading up to it. For truly elevating this film every time she appears on screen and carrying much of its emotional weight as the true pro that she is, Natalie Portman is the MVP. The name is Mighty Thor. My rating for Thor Love and Thunder is three stars out of five.
If it wasn't already obvious, I was all over the place with this movie, which kind of makes sense because the movie itself is all over the place. It's not for everyone. It's apparently not even really for a lot of the most devoted Marvel fans from what I'm hearing. But for me, it accomplishes what it sets out to do despite a very bumpy journey getting there. Among Thor films, if I had to rank this, probably third. It's tough. Narrowly behind the flawed Thor The Dark World and narrowly ahead of Thor Ragnarok. And we're talking these movies are all lined up pretty closely. From my perspective, even though I personally enjoyed all four films, it's that first Thor movie directed by Kenneth Branagh 11 years ago, which remains the only fully realized story told about this character on screen. Guess I am just a sucker for origin stories. If you're looking to watch Thor Love and Thunder, it is currently playing in theaters. And that ends another Chinese Democracy review. Feel free to look that one up. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. And follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.